When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. The following episode of Bread for the People is brought to you by Side Hustle Bread, Long Island's handcrafted artisanal bread company. Side Hustle Bread is a family-run virtual bakery that's bringing the neighborhood feel back to Long Island one loaf at a time. Head on over to SideHustleBread.com for more information, upcoming appearances, and merchandise. My name's Jim Serpico, and this... Should I start with my name? Or should I start with this is Bread for the People? Do you like it like this? Welcome to Bread. Or do you like it like this? Welcome. Ready? Welcome to Bread for the People. Mine... Is there a script? Welcome to Bread for the People. I'm Jim Serpico. My guest today is a producer, comedian, an author, and a public speaker. She's also the daughter of one of the most influential comedians of all time. She's a Buddhist practitioner and an expert on Jungian psychology. Kelly Carlin, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Jim. I've, uh, as you know, I've been trying to get you to do this for a while. I know you've been busy with a lot of things and um, traveling and whatnot, but I'm very excited to talk to you. There's a quote of yours that I want to start out with. Stop trying so hard. The prestige, reputation, and conquering achievement you fear you will miss out on if you don't play the game is not the point of life. Stop making it the point of life. Can we talk about that a little bit? We sure can. <laughs> I mean, I, I would assume that some of this has to do with growing up in the business you grew up in from an early age. But the other irony for me is you've surrounded, from the little I know about you, you've been embedded in the comedy world on your own, Right. Obviously, through yeah. your father and so on, but you you were and are in the game and surrounded by comedians your entire life. You've been on stage and continue to go on stage. You've produced The Green Room with Paul Provenza. Your friends are comedians. And comedians are such a special breed. This is an interesting quote in the life of comedy. Yeah, no, it's, you know, I really see that quote as, and I was just meditating on this this morning too. It really is the work that we're here to do, which is, you know, we're here on this planet and we're inside these cultures where achievement and success and fame are rewarded to a point. And then, of course, we love to tear down those who, <laughs> who reach a level also. It's a real ego game. But it is the game of ego. And ego, when I talk about ego, I really talk about it from a Buddhist and a Jungian perspective, which is 
you know, we have these little pods called bodies, we're little human pods that come into this world, and we need to function on this plane. And we need to, we need to be able to, you know, work with the limited ways in which we are. We're all alive and we're limited by the material world. And then there is this other level of consciousness because we're humans. We have these amazing minds that we connect to where we see it all as a bullshit game. Also, we see it, you know, that all that there really is ultimately is heart and connection and love. And that's, you know, that's where we get all the, the, the religions from, you know, that's the basis of all the, all the main religions. So it's this playing with the tension of both of these things that we're here and we're here to be in it and it's all bullshit at the same time. And there's something about, so growing up in my dad's shadow, my dad was very ambitious, very driven, not in a maniacal, egotistical way. He just, that's how he was wired for whatever reason, his family of origin, how he came into the world, whatever it is, his destiny, who the fuck knows. But he, he was very driven always, and his work was everything for him. And so, you know, that puts a lot of, it can screw with your head if you're the kid of a person like that, you know, who has that kind of a a trajectory and and people who, you know, watch the documentary that's out right now, you really see actually that he was a human in all of that and he he struggled himself with all of that. And so there's that. So I always felt like I was never good enough and that I had to, like if 10,000 people weren't chanting my name, then I was worthless. Like there was some part of me that believed that. And probably Wait, so still, at what age believe. did you... Did you start to feel that you were not good enough? Like, when did you start that feeling? I'm pretty sure we we all feel that at some level, but are we conscious of it? No. I mean, I, I think as a kid, you're not, I mean, I think you are, but you're not really conscious of being conscious of it. You just feel it. You know, when you walk into a room with your mother and father and the whole room lights up and smiles at your father and briefly smiles at you and your mother and then turns to your father and you become invisible, Mm -hmm. uh, there's really a message that happens to you as a kid. No matter how much your parents tell you you're great and you're smart and you're creative and you can do anything, the oppression of the group, (laughs) you know, really plays on your little mind. Like, what do I have to do to be that person, to be the shiny person in the room? Interesting. Uh, and I, I think, I, yeah, yeah, go ahead. It's not even just as a kid, right? I, I feel like having represented talent and some who were stars at an early age without knowing anything about this business, I, I was a, a victim of feeling that. Yes. I didn't know what I was getting into. You know, I felt, I, I none, got my, none I felt, of us do. Right. The one thing I would like to say about your father, I did have a one personal meeting with him and it made me feel really good. I was 23 years old. I was the tour manager for Dennis Leary and we had a small band of people and we were staying at Bally's Hotel in 1993. Nice. And I remember seeing him walk through the lobby with a little white dog in his arm. Mo. His name was Mo. <laughs> yeah, that's who it was, Mo. So uh, 
I called. I just picked up the phone with the cord on it and I called the backstage. I don't know who I asked for or what I did, but I got a voicemail. And uh, I said, I'm trying to get tickets for Dennis Leary. My name's Jim Serpico. And 15 minutes later, your father called my room. And I, I explained again. He goes, I don't give a fuck about Dennis Leary. He goes, I want to meet the guy whose name is Serpico. I want you to come down. Uh, I got you guys tickets. Yeah, you come see us. And, and he treated us all as equals. And he was so cool. And I was, again, young at the beginning of my career, and I, I felt like I made something happen, and he made me feel part of it. And uh, I was already a huge fan of his. Because as a teen, that was my introduction to comedy, watching him on HBO. I always thought he was awesome. But back to that feeling of how do I become the shiny object? I mean... I relate to it in so many ways because my father was a trumpet player and uh, thus I have a trumpet here and I went to music nice. school and I wanted to yeah. do what my father did. Yeah. But it was a combination of times were different. And what did that mean for me? Graduating college in the 90s as a mediocre trumpet player, Right. So I segued into what I knew of show business and, and thought, like, I wanted to do better than my father. I didn't want to do weddings because at that point, that's all he could do as a guy who left college at 15 and went on the road with the big bands. You know, by the 90s, he's doing weddings. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I didn't grow up in the comedy world as a kid. I grew up with a dad who went on the road two-thirds of the year. We weren't part of the scene. We didn't go to comedy clubs. There were no comedy clubs when I grew up. That happened in the late 70s and 80s, that whole comedy club scene. And I was in high school by then and could give a shit. I was into disco and drugs yeah, <laughs> right. by then. You know, and I got a taste a couple of times. We did a pilot for HBO and I got to be an actor in the pilot with my dad. People can see it online. It's called Apartment 2C. I play a punk rock Girl Scout. And I got bit by the bug. I got my first professional laugh. In fact, after we did the scene the first time and I got the laugh, my dad walked up to me quietly and said, congratulations, kiddo. You just got your first professional laugh. And you do. You get bit by the bug. Like You feel the power of that. Um, I'd been on stage in musical theater a teeny bit. But being on the stage terrified me you know, because of the high bar. And I thought I'd have to be perfect in order to go on that stage. So I, am, I avoided it for the most part until the late 90s after my mom died. I talk a lot about my creative process in this journey in my, in my memoir, A Carlin Home Companion. But the comedy thing really happened for me, Jim. After my dad died, within 24 hours, I was talking to people who also really looked up to my dad and who had their own level of success, Gary Shandling, Lewis Black, Bill Maher, people like that who were going on Larry King, going to talk about him. And I, I was suddenly really pulled into my dad's life and his world the moment he died. I'd been having kind of my own separate life, studying Buddhism, getting my master's in Jungian psychology, becoming a life coach, starting to produce a documentary. You know, I'd found a way to kind of 
serve my feed myself my deep soul work that I wanted to do and also try to be in conversation about the state of the world which I really feel the Carlins were kind of that's what we're given as a kind of a, a a job to do in my own way but then these comedians came into my life and and something magical happened there just in the relationships I became very close to Shandling we became friends he became my mentor. I became his. We're both Buddhists. We talked a lot about our spiritual life. We talked a lot about this ego thing that we started talking about here that Gary and I talked a lot about. How do you do this work? How do you stay in this business? How do you stay in this life and know that you have an ego and yet anything the ego constructs about who we're supposed to be or what we're supposed to do is an illusion. It's it's all a game in the end. And at the same time, how do you stay connected to humans and human suffering while at the same time seeing it all as a game and an illusion? And, you know, I think my dad struggled with all of that too. I mean, you look at his work the last 20 years of his life, and he was basically saying the same thing. You know, his last show was, you know, it's called It's All Bullshit, or it's, you know, it's all bullshit and it's bad for you. I think it was called It's Bad For You. You know, it's a very Zen kind of Buddhist approach. It's all bullshit and it's all bad for you, but here we are. How do we take care of each other? How do we find our voices? How do we shine? How do we let go of needing to shine? How do we just let ourselves be the humans we are and know that that's shiny enough? You know, there's all these questions we have. And, you know, I was given this brain and this mind by my parents and by my environment that I grew up in to like, just always be asking the deep, important questions and can drive you crazy. My dad had an outlet. He could go on HBO every 18 months and kind of pour it all into this thing. I don't have the balls to be a stand-up comedian. I don't do that. I do storytelling. I love to be funny. I love to make a group laugh. Been stepping into it a little bit more, but but at the same time, I've also been really focused on teaching and life coaching and stuff the last four years. So, you know, and in the end, it really does come down to what Gary and I would talk about all the time. It really does come come down to love, just being unconditional with yourself, giving yourself lots of permission and space to be an awkward human and to let everyone else around us be awkward humans, too. We're all just trying to do the best we can. You know, I know so many comedians that are driven by fame, money, time's running out. I haven't made it yet. I mean, that's the one thing about this comedy business that uh, I'm at a stage in my life where when I come across those people, it, it bothers me a little bit because it is like they're doing it some of them for the wrong reason. And they're spending less time on what they have to say as a human being. They're spending so much more time on Instagram likes and this video and that video and my clock is ticking and kind of puts a sour taste in my mouth about it. Haven't been around it for so long. I feel like a little over with those types. Yeah. I hear you. I mean, we kind of all get hypnotized by it. I mean, I've certainly gotten hypnotized by that too. I mean, 
you know, I remember at the beginning of Twitter, you know, I'd tell my, my husband like, oh my God, someone's following me, like this famous person. And he would just look at me like, I don't give a uh, shit. And of course, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that goes back to the worth thing that we were talking about earlier, Jim, that like, you know, like that becomes our worth. That becomes the only way we can see if we're valuable or that we're being seen and heard, right? I think underneath it all, we want to know that we're making an impact, that we're valuable, that we're seen and heard. Maybe it's the little kid inside of us that needs that, or maybe it's just that, and we do feel like we're running out of time. I mean, my God, we all feel like we're running out of time these days, especially as we all get older. And I think this business really, really easily tricks you into believing that that's what becomes important. And we forget why we actually got into it in the beginning, which was, you know, that it's an art form and that we love to make people laugh and that we, that we want to have an impact on the audience, that we want to have that shared experience in a room that when you're talking and as a comedian, you know that people are listening because the way you're talking about it is you framed it in such a way that that you are going to get the laugh. And there is this incredible energy that happens in the room when you have a good set or a good experience on stage. You know, even as a storyteller, when you're not getting the laugh part, but you're the people are really listening or really taking things in, there's this incredible thing that happens in the room, right? And you can feel it in your body. There's a, a you know, everyone's at attention. We're all listening to each other. And I think that's partly why we do performance. Performance is such a unique art form. It's not normal mm. <laughs> in that's, a lot of ways. But it is a business, isn't it? So well, it's called if you're a restaurant, business. if yeah. you're a restaurant, you might have gotten into it because you love to cook. But the reality is you need to make enough money to pay your employees and pay the rent. Yes. So now when so, you go into the comedy business, and we're talking about specifically stand-up, you need to pay the rent, right? Yeah. Um, then it comes down to what what is success. And how much rent do you need to pay? You know, I think that's what happens. The trap of the business is you make a big haul and you start making a lot of money and then you buy the house and then the mortgage of the house traps you that you have to keep at a certain level. I mean, I saw that happen to my dad. You know, we moved from a one-room apartment in New York City with a hot plate in 1963 to renting a house in Beverly Hills in 1966 to then buying a nice house in the Palisades in 1972. You know, I mean, it, it becomes a trap after a while. And But this is, you know, this is the choice that we all have you know, now we're now we're not just talking about individuals and what they want. Now we're talking about the trap of the culture in our society and how, you know, capitalism works and deciding on what level of life we're okay with. And fame comes into that, notoriety. So you have to keep feeding the fame machine so that you can sell the tickets. So, you know, and so it becomes this job where you're just you're just part of the machine. I always think about that Pink Floyd song, you know, welcome to the machine. It's it's all right there. You know, they did it to the rock and roll stars also. So, uh, but then you know, there are this, guys this work of performance. Like, yeah, go ahead. Who just put their head down, do the work. The, the guy that I always think of as the example, and maybe I'm wrong because I don't know anything about him, but Daryl Hall, 
was like the hottest musician. And then he went out of fashion, right? When Hall of Oates get out of fashion. And the public doesn't really know shit about him. But musicians know this guy's the real deal. Yep. And then he goes and he just does what he does. Yep. And he, he does this thing out of his house. Mm-hmm. His barn. Love that show. <laughs> yes. And he's created this thing of like, he just did it. I could be way off. I try to live my life that way. And I have never practiced Buddhism, but I am interested. Can you be a part-time Buddhist? Do you have to embody all of it? But I, I kind of uh, yeah. understand the principles of it, and it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, no, you, I mean, I think we're part-time everything, Jim. And I mean, that's, that's the rub of life is that we're not a full-time anything. We're not like enlightened. And then it's like, oh, hey, it's all easy now. We're always moving between feeling centered and everything making sense and just being in flow and then being out of flow. Yeah. And really all Buddhism is, or anything, like with my life coaching, the work I do in that, or even therapy or anything like that, is about helping us just recover to our center with more consciousness, with more kindness, and less time to get there again. But we're always going to get off course. We're always going to forget. You know, and Buddhism is just one path of that, of of remembering who we are and what it really is about. And, you know, Joseph Campbell talked a lot about this. If you watch um, The Power of Myth, this great Bill Moyers series where he did six conversations with the famous mythologist Joseph Campbell, who wrote The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And, you know, there's a lot of cultural stuff around that and people have things to say about Joseph Campbell being having blind spots. Well, everyone does at, in their time. But really, you know, the, the phrase that came out of that conversation and, and kind of is misused a lot, which is follow your bliss. But really, that's what you're talking about with Daryl, you know, that, that Daryl House, amazing show, Daryl's House. It is that thing where you find what you love doing and that you know that you're good at it and that it it's, it's also this concept called Ikigai, I-K-E-G-A-I, which is kind of the meeting place between what you love to do, what the world needs, what you're good at, and one other thing. And it's like a Venn diagram. And then there's like four, there's like a little thing in the middle where it all meets. And that's kind of your sweet spot. And it takes a while, I think, to find that sweet spot in some ways, you know, that we're always evolving more into that sweet spot. And I think about my dad, and I think Judd did such a great job in really showing this in the documentary, this kind of these four or five levels of evolution my dad had to get through as an artist and as a human to really find his sweet spot. You know, he did a he great had- job at that because, you know, I am a little bit younger generation compared to when he started, and I was not completely aware of all that. So it was fascinating yeah. for me to see that evolution. Yeah. And people see him like at any part in his career and just kind of think like he came out fully formed and that those transitions were just like a choice and he just willingly and happily stepped into it. You know, he suffered a lot inside of those transitions to get to the next point. But I think that's what maturing and and aging is for is, you know, there's a different person 
when you're 20 and 40 and 60, you're very different people in the world and you've had a lot of life experience in your body. I'm going to be 60 next year. And, you know, it's like my priorities are shifting and what I'm willing to tolerate is shifting. And I think you see that really in my dad's work too, is like what he's willing to tolerate gets smaller and smaller with every year that he goes. And he shares that with the audience. You know, he gets more strident and and angry. People always say it's his angry stuff of those later years. It's because we know we, we are running out of time. And it's like, people, get your shit together. Like, I don't tolerate this anymore. So I'm going to offer you the gift of why I don't tolerate it anymore. Yeah. I also think the world around us changes, oh, especially yeah. in entertainment, which, you know, I think about. And, you know, when you get to become a certain age, it changes for you. The opportunities change for us. God, yeah. Um, but, but you could still create your own opportunities, which is what Daryl did. And I was yeah. just talking to my writing partner about that. You know, because, you know... You want health insurance, you got to go sell a script or, or get something going, right, in, 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 in writing. But that's, that's a different game than just sitting down and writing a script and going out and shooting it, which was what we were talking about this morning. It's like, you know, it's been a little bit of time because we're playing it the business way, but maybe we should just go and do what we do. Let's go make something. And I've done that before. You know, and the thing is, is that we, I mean, the technology is all there now, right? It used to be that that used to be the hoop that we had to jump through was, you know, be able to rent all the technology and have all the experts and all the crew. But for ten, for four, 14 years now, we've been able to shoot movies and edit them inside this device. It's really kind of crazy. And there is distribution anywhere. You have Vimeo or YouTube, you instant have instant distribution. You know, the question is, Again, are you doing it to get your health insurance paid, which then no. takes other criteria, which is means you need right. you need a lot of eyeballs? Are you doing it for the pure joy of expression? I think and I think in the I case we're talking about is that. I mean, we're we're pitching yeah, next month for the health insurance. We're, we're pitching next month for the health insurance. <laughs> yeah, you know, you could have a couple yeah. different paths and different lanes going. I think you I mean, have to have that, Jim. You have to have all the paths and. I think you have to feed all the selves. You have to feed the part of you that's the adult that has to adult in this world and has to have the health insurance. And I think you have to feed the pure, pure one who is the three-year-old who has no censorship, no self-censorship, and just wants to express and really knows how to express already. And I think those are all super, super important. And I think what happens, like to my dad, what happened was... Because he was, even though he was free to be an artist on HBO, he had to feed the machine too. And his machine was paying his bills and he had a lot of tax issues and all that kind of stuff. So he was trapped in that. And he used to, I remember once he said to me, he goes, God, I just wish I could be like an avant-garde visual artist, you know? And I'm like, well, dad, you, you could, you could just like get a paintbrush and do something crazy on the side. But he felt like that would take too much of his time and energy away from what he had to feed into, you know, so everyone's, everyone's trying to juggle this. So, you know, you probably don't know that I am doing that now. That's why this is called bread for the people. I am a bread baker. 
And I have, oh my God, gorgeous. I, I have a, a bread business where we do about four to five farmers markets a weekend and we do home deliveries and I'm pretty serious about it. Pretty serious mm. about it. I've kind of, and I, I'm still doing the other stuff, but I'm treating it like a project, like I would a production project. And I yep. love it. Uh, and you it know? feeds you as you feed others. It does. But it does make me think about some of these things we're talking about all the time. Yeah. The repetition of, sometimes I work alone in terms of the bread stuff. And I'm doing this three years now of pretty steady three, 365 days a year. Sometimes long hours. And just the repetition of getting better at better at one thing, you know, mm-hmm. and it's the struggle of, you know, it, it's not going to make me rich. And then the, sometimes, uh, uh, you know, I am a driven person too. So I'm like, maybe this can make me rich. You know, I'm trying to figure that out. But, um, you know, right now there's not the pressure that it has to. Right. Yeah. And it, it also that, sounds that like... It also sounds like the practice of bread making for you is your meditation. Oh, without question. Yeah. And the other thing I like, and this is one thing I wanted to talk to you about, because I had to study Jungian psychology to do this conversation. <laughs> it's, and it's pronounced Jung, like a Jung. Y, Jungian. Uh-huh. Jungian. Jungian. Yep. Jungian. You know, I was always pretty shy. And I, I started to have this conversation with a guest a couple weeks ago who asked me if I'm an introvert and an, or an extrovert. Yes. And I said, I think I'm both. Yep. And then when I did, was doing my research, he talks about that. He does. He talks about that. And that, I fit right into exactly what he talks about. When there's a reason, it's not as awkward in the bread business for me to be at the farmer's market because people are coming there for my bread and I'm having organic, natural conversations with 50 to 200 people at one time. And I love it. And they become friends of mine and I meet restaurateurs, bakers, pizza makers, and I'm really into it. But other times, like if I go to a party, this and that, I feel very awkward and I feel like I'm an introvert and I don't belong there. It's like a little of both. But the bread thing, it just makes it easier for me. Yeah. One way to also determine which one you are is when you need to recharge yourself, do you need to go be by yourself or do you get recharged when you're around a lot of people? Hmm. But I, okay, I'm not sure if I have the answer. It might be. I have to think about it. And you but could is, be 50-50, Jim, because I'm pretty much 50-50 myself. I'm probably 60-40 mm-hmm. or 70-30. I'm more of an introvert. I love my own. I have to have cave time. I have to be away from people in order to remember who I am. I think part of that, too, is I'm a, I'm a pretty recovering codependent. So other people, I start to serve other people in unconscious ways. But I do love to get on stage every once in a while. I can't do right. it every night. Like your stand-up comedian friends, like my stand-up comedian friends have to get on stage every night. Like they do not know who they are unless they are around people and getting that thing. Exactly. That's a 
That's exhausting to me. I cannot do that every night. I can do that once a month. Yeah. I mean, I know comedians that, and I'm not putting them down, man. No, it's just but, who they but, are. But they won't take a vacation. They won't do anything, you know, unless they work on it. And so I've seen some of them work on it, you yeah. know, and, and try I, to I figure agree. out how to do that. Well, I think some of them, you know, I, I think about like Gary and Jim Carrey and some other people who really felt the business making them insane. And they had to, in order to keep their feet on the ground and to really stay sane, had to learn a different way of being in the world and had to learn to take care of themselves. Our culture does not invite us into self-care, into determining what our limits are. You know, capitalism is based on endless growth and so is cancer. <laughs> so, you know... <laughs> But now, are you saying you're uh, anti-capitalism? I say that capitalism is out of balance and that it is, it is at this time in, in our country's life and in the world's life, it is very out of balance. And it is not, it is not conscious. It's very unconscious. And it's being uh, the, the, the mass poorly distribution of wealth in this world says everything about it. I, I'm not a person who believes in 100% socialism, but I'm not someone who believes in rampant, completely total free market capitalism either. I was raised to see the, the evil of capitalism through my father's perspective and that it is based on greed. And that if you don't have some sort of limiter on personal greed you get the world that we live in today where the resources of our planet aren't shared in, in a way that people can survive. There's enough food on this planet and there's millions of starving people. That, that makes no sense. So, so, so it's about distribution at some level. I don't have an answer for it. I'm not a policy person. I'm not a, 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 you know, I'm not a politician. But I mean, you look around the world, it's clearly out of balance. But I'm a capitalist. I own a business. I'm an entrepreneur. People pay me money for my services. I'm a life coach. I have a business called Humans on the Verge. I'm a high-end life coach. I have a, groups of people who go through my programs and my courses, and I have personal clients also. My dad was a capitalist. He got paid for things. He paid for things with them. But there is definitely... Uh, you know, there's there's two ways. There's there's many ways to do this thing, but you know, the, the 1980s really screwed up a lot of things in our culture, and yeah. uh, the deregulation of a lot of things. You know, and you know, there's there's about six industries that run the world, and they don't give a shit about people. They just don't. You know, it's the arms dealers, it's the oil the energy companies, it's the pharmaceutical companies, it's the insurance companies, and it's the banks. And they're really, really not interested in individuals. They're interested in maintaining their share and their power. And that's dangerous. Yeah. That being said, you know, if somehow you're lucky enough to have those self-limiters and make a good amount of money for a period of time, that could buy you a lot of freedom to live the way you want. But I guess the issue is that most people don't have them. 
And isn't that sad that that's what takes it to be a free human being on earth is to be able to play, you know, to plug into this game of capitalism so that you don't live in fear every day of shelter, food, health care, and quality of life. Yes. Um, and I think that's a fact. I think that yeah. for uh, people at all different stages, that's what drives anxiety, I think. A hundred percent. I mean, it's our survival mechanism and, you know, it's, I think it's, I think it's what leads a lot of despair in the world is because we feel like we have to play this game, but there's only a few winners in this game. And therefore it brings out our competitive side, which then makes us step on other people to get ahead. And there's ways of doing that that's not so unconscious and not so cruel and not so self-serving, but it's tough. It's tough because the system is rigged that way. You know, I mean, I mean, I, this, when I say that, okay. my dad I think comes walking system, in the room, you know, you I, know, it's like my dad I, comes like right here. I'm like, oh, the system's rigged. And it is. Yeah. But at the same time, aren't we animals? Mm-hmm. We are just, I think we are. I think we're, we're animals. Part of nature. I think we're, we're aspects of animals, but we are given this profound conscious mind and the ability to have multiple perspectives. And it, it behooves us. It is our requirement as humans to move beyond the primal survival instinct and to do better. And that's what all the religions talk to us about. The reason there are 10 commandments is because they're all the 10 commandments are is do better. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know where I f- sit with all that. Um, I mean, I'm not a religious person, but that's when you, when you really look at all of the teachings of all of the ancient things, treatises, Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, you know, Judaism, whatever it is, you know, it's look, we're, you know, we're selfish, we're selfish animals. So here's the list of things you have to do better with. So don't fucking kill each other. Stop stealing from each other. Stop treating each other like shit. Stop picking on each other. And be kind to your neighbor. I mean, my God, the golden rule is really the called the golden rule because it's all you need in the end. But you know, look at you know, look at what social media has done to us in just 15 short years. Yeah. There's no golden rule on social media. It is only fed into our animalistic dog eat dog nature. Because you're it saying is- what I'm saying. You are saying we're animals and we we have I'm the saying- ability to overcome it. Yes, of course. We're, yes, of course we're animals. That's why we have the Ten Commandments because it's like we are animals. Therefore, we need to do better. And the thing is, is that you know all of this technology and all of our media, right, left, mainstream, does not matter what it is, is all wired to get your attention and to make you feel miserable so that you can will hit something to to get past the moment. It's refresh, refresh. Oh, this is making me feel miserable. What's the next thing? It's all the dopamine hit thing. You know, so it's feeding into our most primal part of our brain. You know, there's mm-hmm. this rep, there's three parts. They, well, not, it's, they've said it's not like this, but it is. There's this reptilian part of our brain that only needs, only knows survival and not survival. That's all it knows. And it behooves us every day to connect to something higher than that and higher than our mammalian brain 
and to use this conscious mind of reason and critical thinking to move beyond these basic urges. And there's lots of ways to do that. But we all need to find our way in which we slaps us awake every morning and reminds us that we don't have to feed the machine and don't become fodder for the machine. Now, all that being said, and going back to drive, it's okay to have goals. It's okay to say, I want to become the best bread maker I can. And, and let's lay on top of that. I want to make more money at selling bread next year than I did this year. Anything wrong with that? No, not at all. Are you going to kill someone for it? Are you going to create suffering in the world? Are you going to shut your heart down in order to do that? No, probably no, not. No, but I am going to do that in the television pilot I'm writing on spec. There you go. Well, that's that's the great use of story and fiction is we play out all we play out all the urges, right? I mean, I think that's the, the exactly. power of story. It's right. why we we have myth, is because myth goes, Oh, look, we're humans struggling with these basic impulses from right. day one. Look at the earliest stories that man has told humans have told themselves. Um, no, I'm a person who's very into goal setting. I'm a person who's very much wants to make enough money to be comfortable. But I don't have to make enough money that, you know, that I'm not, you know, that, that it, I'm not distributing it con- constantly. That's the other thing about money, too. Money is just energy. And it's about distributing it throughout the world. And the more I make, the more it passes through me and the more people I can hire and bring up the quality of their life. And then they can bring up the quality of life around them. I mean, isn't that a beautiful thing too? Yeah. You know, that if, if it's just me doing it, then I'm only impacting certain things. But if I can make enough money to have a team around me and have people creating quality of life for their families that are then helping their communities through the things that they, the bread that they buy, you right. know, this is, this is what basic humans have done for, you know, tens of thousands of years. So um, no, and I think it's great to have goals, and I think it's really important to stretch ourselves out of our comfort zones. And I think it's very important to have dreams and to and to step towards them. I think the you know one of the problems that humanity has is that we don't dream big enough. None of us do for each other, for ourselves, or for our species, or for this planet. We've all kind of become resolved that it's like, oh well, this is the shitty shit show it is. And I'm just going to get what I can before I get out. Yeah. Now, with the year coming to an end, do you think it's important to reflect upon what we've been through, each, each of us individually, and, and look at our wins and losses, celebrate our victories? Is that a helpful endeavor? It's something I've been doing for the last 25 years of my own life. I used to do it in a private gathering of friends where we would get together and do some prep work and really look at our years and and look at the things um look at the harvest the gifts i like to call it like harvesting really the gifts so i think it's really important to pause regularly to do this but very much so at the end of the year there's something about winter time and the solstice time that is so powerful for us as humans, you know, imagine not quite understanding how the universe works. And every year the day gets shorter and shorter and shorter. And everyone's looking around going, 
is this thing ever going to get longer again? And then there's that day when it does and humans, you know, built these amazing things to like honor this moment where the day gets longer and they like calculated it and they figured it out. And this is like 25,000 years ago, they figured all this out. Uh, so there's something about that where the days get shorter and then we, we had that day of the solstice. And so I used to do these solstice celebrations around that. And then also honoring the losses of like, what did, what, what did we shed? What did we walk away from? What were some unexpected losses? There's always, as we get older, there's always people who were losing, actually losing in the world, collectively and personally. And so I used to have this personal gathering. And then the last couple of years, because I have this on the verge, humans on the verge business, um, coaching world and community, uh, I started doing it publicly. And last year I made it a super big public event which I call it light the year on fire, which could go two ways. Like either like strike a match and let the shit show burn and let it all burn away or light the spark, like light the next year on fire. Right. So, and you have to like empty in order to light. And so I now do a collective public event. I'm doing my event uh, this December 17th online. It's all on zoom. And last year I had people come from like, India and England and Australia. It was really, really cool. It was the first time I'd had a global event. And we got to sign up for that. Yeah, I will. You know what I'll do? I will give you a link so that your, you, Jim, can come (laughs) and, but also your listeners can come. And I, I do charge a fee for it. Once again, this is part of my business and it (laughs) helps me pay my team who I have three people on my team who work, who work with me and we gather for four hours and we'll get a chance to kind of go over this. We do some homework beforehand. I give people a chance to come and do homework with me. And then we also light the year on fire and we do some visioning forward. What do we want for the next year? Now that we've honored all of this, who are we expanding into? What is our next version of ourself? And even what's calling us forward? You know, we get called in life. We get this nudge. We get this feeling in our body. We get this like direction pull. I I like to call it our true north kind of pulls us forward. So what's calling us so that we step into our fullness and that fullness aligns with what the world needs right now. And I don't mean like on some big planetary, like you're going to have to solve all the problems of the world. But in what way are you participating in the joy of the world and of the healing of the world and of the, of the play of the world? And so I just love creating this space for people. Because I think collectively, when we come together to do this, we remember that we're not alone in all of this. It's so important. That's great. Are you still doing stand-up? I've never done stand-up. I don't know why people call me a comedian sometimes. I don't know where that's listed in the world. I'm not a stand-up comedian. I've never done stand-up. I've been a storyteller. I had a one-woman show called A Carlin Home Companion that turned into my memoir. I tell stories. I am going to tell a story actually in Los Angeles this Christmas. I think it's on the 12th or the 13th at the Colony Theater. And um, it's a little Christmas show. And so I'm going to tell one of my Christmas stories about my family there. 
but I don't do stand up. I uh, Paul Provenza has these private parties shows at his house that we stream on Nowhere Comedy, which oh, is yeah. Ben Glebe's uh, comedy yep. thing. And I do get up and I'll do a little introduction thing and I'll play a little bit. And sometimes I'll, you know, I'll have like a joke in mind in there somewhere. And I love using humor in what I do and I want to do more of that, but I've never done a stand up set at a comedy club. It's not my jam. Got it. And the documentary, I just do want to mention for any of the listeners who haven't seen it George Carlin's American Dream was absolutely amazing, in my opinion. I assume you were thrilled with it. Yeah, we won an Emmy too for it. We're very thrilled. It's amazing. Congratulations. Yeah. You were one Thank of the producers you. along with uh, Judd Apatow, who, who also was a co-director on it. Yeah, Judd Apatow and Michael Bonfiglio were co-directors. I was an executive producer. I gave Judd some basic ideas about things that I wanted and didn't want. Very basic, like you know, make it interesting like my dad and innovative like my dad and not too many talking heads. And then Judd really went and did the rest. And I'm so honored to have worked with his team and Michael and Joe, the amazing, amazing editor. Uh, But the whole team was incredible. And it's just an honor to be a part of this project and an honor to have uh, Judd and Michael really see the power of my family's story, which I had told in my book, in my solo show, but the world hadn't really seen. And I really think that when they decided, they got how, they saw how important it was to include that, to really tell the full story of my father. And I'm deeply honored by the work and I'm deeply honored to be recognized as we were in it. Yeah, it was fantastic. Thank you. Well, thank you for doing this. It was great getting to know you a little more. I I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm going to look into uh, Buddhism. Good. And if you call me anytime, if you want, I can give you some tips and some places to start. And thank you for really, thank you for having me here today. And I love that this podcast is called Bread for the People. And I love the backstory on that. It's so beautiful. And thank you for, thank you for doing all the research you did to have this conversation with me. I'm a podcaster too, and I understand how much time and effort that takes. And so I I really, really am honored and appreciative that you did that. And really, this was a, a lovely, lovely time. Thank you. I feel the same way. Thank you so much, Kelly. Have a great day. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. This episode of Bread for the People was brought to you by Side Hustle Bread, Long Island's handcrafted artisanal bread company. Side Hustle Bread is a family-run business that's bringing the neighborhood feel back to Long Island one loaf at a time. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to head on over to iTunes and rate and review this episode. Reviewing and rating is the most effective way to help us grow our audience. This episode was produced by Milestone TV and Film. I'm your host, Jim Serpico. Blessed be the bread, everyone. Bread for the people.